and therefore chosen to trust that life among his people will be better than life with her own people back in Moab. And so now we have to ask ourselves, as chapter 2 starts, what is next for Ruth and Naomi? If Naomi, at the end of chapter 1, is empty and embittered, how will God work to restore and to reverse the fortunes of this penniless and broken-hearted widow? If Ruth has thrown herself behind the God of Israel and decided to put faith in his ability to provide in his land, well, what kind of land, what kind of people has Ruth returned to? What's next for Ruth and Naomi? It doesn't take us long into Ruth chapter 2 to find that the answer to both those questions is somehow tied up to the entrance of our third main character. Verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Throughout Ruth chapters 2 to 4, as we see how Ruth and Boaz end up married, you'll see that there is a notable absence of flowers and chocolates and poetry and WhatsApp flirty banter. That's because we are not reading here a human romance, but a divine one. As we dive into more detail about how God redeems Naomi and Ruth through Boaz, what we are being drawn to see ultimately is that this is a story of God's steadfast love, God's sovereign kindness towards his people. That's the big message that we once again need to grasp in Ruth chapter 2. This is a story about God's unseen kindness. And here, how that unseen kindness is reflected visibly in the faithfulness of God's people. The aim in doing that, once again, is that we marvel all the more about who God is and what he has done, not just for Ruth and Naomi, but for each and every one of us if our trust is in Christ this evening. So that big main message, you'll see that forms the two main headings under which we'll look at this chapter, God's unseen kindness and God's people's faithfulness. So first of all, God's unseen kindness. And we get a couple of clues that the Lord really is directing Ruth's steps behind the scenes in all that goes on in chapter 2. So, for example, you may have noticed that there are brackets around the chapter. We've just read verse 1, where Boaz is introduced. That's echoed in verse 20. Naomi also said to Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Not just a relative, a close relative. And not just a close relative, a redeemer. Throughout chapter 2 then, Ruth and Naomi are being brought to encounter the very man that they need. I don't know if you came across this story uh, this week. I was scrolling through the BBC News app and found a story about a woman who was really unwell, in desperate need of a, a kidney donor, otherwise she wasn't going to pull through. And she and her husband went for a trip to the beach and they struck up a conversation with a stranger and she explained to her, I'm actually quite unwell, I, I need a kidney donor. And the woman said, that's funny, just this day I signed up to be a kidney donor. And the woman said, well, for who for? The other woman said, for whoever wants it. And it turned out she was a perfect match. It was like a one in a million chance. And somehow this woman, 
managed to meet the very person, the only person who could help her. That's a, an amazing coincidence. Well, Ruth and Naomi desperately need someone to redeem their situation. And it's through coincidence, though divinely orchestrated coincidence, that they meet him. That's highlighted in verses 3 and 4. Ruth sets out, goes to glean in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. The construction of those verses, it's so intentional. It's like a knowing wink from the narrator that he records that Ruth just so happened to come by Boaz's field. And lo and behold, who should happen to rock up at that moment but Boaz himself? This is a device that's used later in Ruth in chapter 4 as well. This acknowledgement from the writer that everything that's going on here is not coincidence but divinely orchestrated coincidence as God himself directs the steps of Ruth and Naomi. That's similar in how other words are repeated. Favor is recorded three times in verse 2, in verse 10, in verse 13. Every little detail in the text seems to be pointing us towards seeing that Ruth and Naomi have a need, a desperate need, that no one can seem to meet, but that God himself is directing their path towards fulfilling that very need. And that's because, as well as divine coincidence, we are seeing in Ruth chapter 2 abundant divine provision. I think it's really important that we establish that before we go further in Ruth chapter 2, further in Ruth generally, Understanding that it is God's provision, God's kindness at work is so key because it forms a helpful guardrail against misunderstanding what's going on in this story or against turning it into a morality tale. There's a couple of pieces of wider biblical context to help us understand exactly what's going on here. More of God's gracious provisions from the law. It's funny, we can sometimes find ourselves thinking that the Old Testament God is somehow mean and capricious and always laying down impossible to follow rules just to beat his people around the head. Strangely enough, actually, God in his law reveals himself to be a God of abundant, steadfast love. He cares so much for his people. That judgmental, impossible-to-follow, onerous law actually seems to intimately care for the welfare of his people. Hence the idea of gleaning. That's a practice that's built into the law to provide for the needy in Israelite society. When, when Ruth says, I want to go glean in someone's field, that's because in the law, in Leviticus 23, verse 22, we read, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The idea of gleaning is that in God's promised land, where God cares for his people, there will always be something for those in need. Something to eat for the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, the poor. Sounds a bit like someone we know, doesn't it, in this story. 
Anything that falls to the ground as farmers reap their harvest, anything that falls should be left there. That's an important detail. Remember that. We'll come back to it later. That's gleaning. The second gracious provision of God's law is this idea of leveret marriage. Now, we touched on that a wee bit last week. We mentioned how in this society, Naomi and Ruth, they're in such dire straits because they needed a man to provide for them. If you didn't have a father or a husband or a brother, you didn't have anyone to be literally a breadwinner for you. And so again, in in that kind of society where a male protector and provider was so important, God in his law says to his people, here is my provision to make sure that's as likely to happen as possible. Deuteronomy 25, we read that if a man dies and leaves a widow, then her lever or brother-in-law, lever hence lever at marriage, He has a duty to marry her, to carry on the family line. And we see as well that there are wider implications. If there's no brother-in-law, then another near-meal relative should take on that duty. That's why Naomi makes such a big deal in chapter 1 about not being able to provide husbands for Orpah and Ruth. It's not that there are no single men in Israel, I take it. It's that there is no close male relative she can think of, or certainly that she can provide to be a redeemer for her daughters-in-law. A close male relative to take on the brother's widow and to carry on the family name. That's what Ruth and Naomi need. And I'm sure we're starting to connect the dots here ourselves. Ruth and Naomi have a desperate need And it is God, the God who provides, who is going to meet that need. That's who God is. That's what God does. He is a God whose heart for his people is always to provide for their most desperate and fundamental need. And again, we'll see that in more detail in this particular story of Ruth and Boaz that follows. But just for now, it's worth pausing to just take notice of that, to really take heart in the fact that that is who our God is. The God who gives, who cares, who provides, this is our God. Maybe one question that we find ourselves chewing on after last week is, well, this is all well and good for Ruth, but what about for me? God gives bread, God gives a baby in chapter one, but there are plenty of Christians who live below the poverty line. There are plenty of God's people for whom family life is really difficult and painful. God is kind, the God of steadfast love, But my life is hard, and it doesn't seem to get easier any time soon. To which I think it's worth saying that we mustn't lose sight of the fact that it is a long and dark road for Ruth and Naomi. They and we are never promised quick material relief from our burdens and cares. But through this story, through this revelation of what God's character is like, who he is, what he does, we find wonderful reassurance that his heart is fundamentally for his people. That he is always 
at work for the good of those who love him. That's how Romans describes the ultimate hope that those who are in Christ have, that God is always at work for the good of those who love him. It doesn't mean that everything will be good, will feel good, but it does mean that we can always trust that God has good for us. And I, and I know that for many of us, we will be able to look back on the most painful times of our lives, the most profoundly dark days that we've gone through. And even as we don't diminish the pain and the reality of the suffering, we are able to say, and yet, God was so kind to me through that. There were so many ways in which he demonstrated himself to be so kind through the provision of his people. Other times, of course, we just don't know. We can't see the obvious examples of how God has been at work for our good. But even when that's the case, we can be assured, we can take heart that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also with him graciously give us all things. As God reveals more of his heart to us in Ruth chapter 2, Well, we take heart that God's heart has not changed. That heart that's for his people, that fundamentally wants to give and to bless and to provide those who are in Christ, that underpins everything happening in Ruth and everything that happens in our lives. And what's more, God's unseen kindness, both in our lives and in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, the unseen kindness is displayed visibly in the faithfulness of his people. It's our second heading, and we see that in the examples of both Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, first of all, the faithful foreigner. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. You'll notice if you go through it again that we keep being reminded that this is Ruth the Moabite, the Moabite from Moab. Presumably not because the writer thinks we might forget, but because it's astounding that this recent convert, this foreigner who's been grafted into God's people, that Ruth the Moabite from Moab has such bold, confident, active faith that the God of Israel, her God, will provide. Somehow Ruth has heard enough about the God of Israel to think, this is a God. This is a God whose gracious law for his people works. This is a God who is so good that his people must be just like him. Who could encounter a God like this and not long to be just like him? There will be someone in whose sight I shall find favor. In God's promised land. It's remarkable faith. It's active. She trusts that God will provide. She puts that trust into practice. And she's also, of course, remarkably faithful towards Naomi. After all, there's no legal reason why Ruth should stick around. As we thought about last week, it would be much more sensible to peg it back to Moab and to her own people. 
And so her decision to stay with Naomi has caused a stir around Bethlehem. Boaz flags that up in verse 11, did you notice? All that you've done for your mother-in-law has been fully told to me. It's been well said that if Ruth is a love story, then it's a love story about Ruth's love for Naomi. She's so faithful to her, so kind to her, even though she's under no obligation. We've said a few times, we'll say it again and again, this primarily is a story about God's goodness which draws us to marvel at him, it really is. But I take it that where we encounter faithful people in the Bible, where God's word shows us examples of people who love him so much and demonstrate that love in active, practical faithfulness and kindness, not only are we compelled to want to be more like those people we find ourselves wanting to be? We can't help but see active, bold, confident faith displayed in practice and, think, and not think, I want to be more like that person. A bit like we thought about with Psalm 16 this morning and David's great devotion. We still have much to learn from the human characters of Ruth as they are models of faithfulness for us. We should imitate Ruth's bold confidence in God and his ability to provide, even when things seem bleak. We should imitate Ruth's kindness, her commitment to Naomi and how we care for and love one another. And I'm sure we'll also find ourselves wanting to imitate Boaz too, because after all, he is Boaz, a worthy man, according to verse 1. And then we see loads of details in the text which back up that claim. Look at all the ways in which Boaz is shown to be a model of godliness. There's this introduction into the drama in verse 4. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Remember where and when we are in the history of God's people. These are the days of the judges, a very dark time spiritually. And yet, in Israel, there is at least one man remaining who loves God and loves God's people. Wouldn't you love to have a boss who came into the office every day earnestly praying for God's blessing on you? Of course I do have a boss like that. But wouldn't you love a boss who came in every day praying for God to bless you and instilled such a culture in the office that you were compelled to pray for him as well? That's Boaz. Boaz the godly man. Boaz the man of prayer. He's also Boaz the kind man. We see that in verse 8. After he's found out who Ruth is, he says to her, Now listen, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This first encounter between Ruth and Boaz, it's tempting, and in fact many people do, it's tempting to paint this as the moment where the music swells, where everything goes a bit light and fairy, and, and uh, airy, and uh, their eyes meet across the room, and Boaz says, whose young woman is this? And everything goes into slow motion. You'll notice that's not quite the vibe. In fact, if anything, we get a sense that Boaz is old. 
He calls Ruth a young woman and my daughter. It's the same words that Naomi uses. He's lumped in with the older generation. So this is not a scene of a romantic wooing as the tall, dark stranger shars the object of his affections with gifts. It's the scene of a a godly, old man being very kind in protecting and showing grace to the outsider and to the needy. Boaz knows that not every field in Israel will be like his field. Again, days of the judges, very dark time, especially for a young, unprotected foreign woman. Boaz knows that if Ruth tries another field, it might not end well. And even here, he feels the need to tell his young men, again, of which he's not one, tell his young men not to touch Ruth, not to abuse their position, not to assault her. Boaz does all he can to protect Ruth from harm. He is so kind to her. As a matter of fact, he's so gracious to her. The word that comes up a few times, favor, verse 10, verse 13, actually means grace. Boaz wants to show Ruth that the God in whom she has come to take refuge really is a God of grace an amazing wonder. He seems to know intuitively that if this young woman has taken refuge under the wings of the Almighty, what a wonderful and tender image of God's protection used throughout the Old Testament. If she's done that, it would be really poor form if the Lord's people didn't show her the same grace that he has shown her. That's what's behind his really abundant provision for Ruth and Naomi. And it really is abundant. Verses 15 and 16, he he tells her not, tells his young men to let Ruth not just to glean among what's fallen to the ground, but to let her glean among the rest of the crops and even to pull out some things and leave them for her. Remember what we said earlier, that gleaning is a gracious provision of the law, But it was not uncommon for landowners in Israel to try and apply that gracious law as minimally as they could. I had some friends once, they found an online voucher for a restaurant and they turned up and were made to feel about as welcome as some bad news. They were shown to the worst table in the place and were directed towards a very small corner of the menu. Their food came out quickly and they barely set their knives and forks down after the meal before the bill was presented to them and they were quite heavily implied they should leave at that point. A lot of people would have tried to apply the gleaning law a bit like that. Try to just skim around the edges, try to apply a five-second rule of, well, maybe if we pick it up really quickly, we don't need to leave everything. Because it's good business sense to pick every single last bit of crop that you can. But that's not Boaz. Boaz loves God. And Boaz loves God's law. The gleaning thing for him, it's not an inconvenience. It's not bad business. It's another opportunity to share in God's heart for the needy and the broken. And so in this move, which makes absolutely zero financial sense, he gets his young men to tear out the sheaves for Ruth and to leave them around, making sure that when she goes back to Naomi... Her hands are bursting full of food. 
And this is a, a really wonderful picture of who Boaz is. Again, I, I trust that we want to be more like Boaz as we find out more about him here. Who among us doesn't want to be more godly, more prayerful, more kind, better at making provision for God's people with our time and our resources? Of course, we want to be like Boaz. But of course, there's more to Boaz than just a good example for us. We see that in the fact that this is not just Boaz, a godly man, a worthy man, but Boaz of the clan of Elimelech, a redeemer. Verse 19, Ruth told her mother-in-law, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I love that in these verses we see a couple of wonderful reversals of what Naomi has gone through by the end of chapter 1. What's her big complaint at the end of chapter 1? The Lord brought me back empty. But we know God is the God who gives bread. And so by the end of chapter 2, Naomi isn't empty-handed anymore, but she and Ruth have their hands full of Boaz's abundant provision of food. What does Naomi think of God's character at the end of chapter 1? He is the God who has dealt bitterly with her. But here he's the God whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Already, Naomi's story of tragedy and heartbreak is starting slowly but wonderfully to reverse. She's starting to see again who God is, so abundantly kind to his people. And she's able to see that because in Boaz, Ruth hasn't just so happened, lo and behold, to find a nice bloke who will sort them out with a few square meals every once in a while. No, in the Lord's providence, Ruth has been led towards the human channel of God's redemptive blessing the very one who is the ultimate solution to their current state of need. And also not just their need. This is a story that goes way deeper, stretches far further than just Ruth and Naomi. I gave a bit of a spoiler alert last week that Ruth and Naomi get married and end up having a baby. Here's another spoiler alert. Chapter 4, verse 17, after the baby is born... And the women of Bethlehem gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Even through this story of human tragedy, God, the covenant-keeping God, the kind God of Israel, he is at work to restore and redeem his whole people. We might remember that at the end of the book of Judges, we read again and again, in those days there was no king, everyone did as he saw fit in his own eyes. Here we see that God is at work to provide a king for Israel, a king after his own heart, a king to rule and to protect and through whom he will bless them. 
Ultimately, though, we know that the true fulfillment of the king in the line of David, the line of Boaz, is the great king who God is at work to provide, the king overall who conquers sin and death, our glorious King Jesus. And so in Ruth 2 then, we find great reason for confidence to come back to our earlier point that God truly is always at work to bring about his redemptive purposes. In Ruth 2, we find real confidence that the gospel always gives us real and life-giving hope. The students will know that I keep referencing a book that I've read, which always makes me cry, by an American church leader who went through his own time of real hardship as he lost his infant son. His book is his narrative of hope, how the gospel has helped him and sustained him even through his darkest days. He puts it like this. My tragedy has not disrupted the narrative of my life. My story remains God's story, and that is a story of redemption. Ultimately, Boaz is a picture not just of a worthy man, but a picture of our Redeemer. I think it was Spurgeon who called Jesus Christ our glorious Boaz. Because Ruth chapter 2 draws our eyes and our hearts towards him, our great Redeemer. It is in Christ Jesus that God blesses us with every spiritual blessing. It is in Christ Jesus that we have redemption lavished abundantly upon us out of the riches of God's grace. It is in Christ Jesus that we find true cause for rejoicing, even through trial, rejoicing which is safe for us. It's in Christ Jesus that we have a Redeemer who loves God's law, who fulfills it perfectly. But as we'll go on to see throughout the story of Ruth, it is in Christ Jesus that we have a Redeemer who, at such great cost, has brought us aliens, strangers, foreigners, though we were, into the fold, making us God's people. (coughs) Excuse me. So we are drawn in this chapter, I trust, to imitate Boaz. We can't help but want to imitate him and Ruth as we see their faithfulness. But we're drawn most of all to glory in what a great, what a kind, what a wonderful redeemer we have in Christ Jesus. 